alone in my sorrow and dead in my sin lost without hope and no place to begin your love made a way to let mercy come in when death was arrested and my life began Ash was redeemed, only beauty remained. My orphan heart was given a name. My morning grew quiet, my feet rose to dance. When death was arrested and my life began. Do your grace so free washes over me. You have made me new now. Life begins with you. Released from my chains, I'm a prisoner no more. My shame was a rejoiced as though heaven had lost but then Jesus arose with the freedom in hand that's when death was arrested my life began that's when death that's when Never with 
listen to these, uh, these words from First Peter spoken about Jesus. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's worship Christ together and him risen. Yeah. 
My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here at Remedy, and welcome to Easter Sunday. He is risen. All right, good job, good job. Um, if you guys want to, go ahead and open up. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 5. Um, kind of the tradition of he is risen, he is risen indeed. It's one of the first statements in the New Testament that the disciples make after seeing Christ risen from the dead. In Luke 24, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, they see Christ, and then they come back and they hear that the other apostles saw Christ, and they all gather together and they say, Christ is risen indeed. Um, so that's where that kind of comes from. So if you guys would stand with me, we're going to read in honor of God's word, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 5. Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can be seated. Let's uh, pray. Jesus, make yourself known to us today through your word, through our singing, through our prayers, through our love for one another, through our eating and drinking of the bread and the wine. We long to see you, Jesus, and we long to know the hope that's found in your resurrection, that life happens after death, that you have defeated death in your death, and that you have promised life to all of us as we slowly each day take steps closer and closer towards death. As we suffer through this life, we know that because Christ was raised, we too shall be raised. So I pray that you would strengthen our faith here today in Christ. Lord Jesus, I also ask that for anyone here who doesn't trust in you, that you would reveal yourself in a saving way to them, that you would soften their heart of stone and that you would give them a heart of flesh, that you would put your spirit within them and that you would reveal your Father's glory in your face. And Lord, that we would see that truly you are risen. Uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. He is risen. We're going to do that a few times. Um, so what, what is the heart of Christianity? What is at its very roots? If you had seven words to sum up Christianity, what would you say? If we extended that out to 32 words, what would you say? 
our passage this Easter morning gets to the very heart of Christianity. And according to most biblical scholars, it's one of the oldest pieces of tradition in the church, our passage today. One of the oldest pieces of tradition, one of the oldest statements of faith the New Testament church ever produced. Paul received the gospel, then he preached the gospel. And 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 5, represents this earliest church creed, this statement of faith that we have. Well, what kind of points us to this? Uh, well, Paul was converted on the Damascus Road around 31 or 32 AD. So that's within a couple years or even on the same year that Jesus died and was resurrected. Paul then travels to Jerusalem around 34 or 35 AD, give or take a year, and so some scholars argue that some of this creed came from Peter when Paul visited him at Jerusalem. But Paul actually writes in Galatians that this gospel that he preaches, he didn't receive it from man. He received it from God. And so other people have stated, that's Paul stating that this creed that he writes in 1 Corinthians 15 came from the lips of Jesus himself to him and didn't come from Peter. Besides the point, whether it came from Peter or it came from Jesus to Paul, either way, it dates this statement that he writes in 1 Corinthians 15 to be within five years of Jesus' death and resurrection. So at the heart, at the beginning of Christianity, the crucifixion of Christ and the resurrection of Christ was the very heart of the message that the church was built upon. It's the earliest thing the church ever produced because the church didn't produce it. So what is this creed? In seven words, it's Jesus Christ and him crucified and resurrected. In 32 words, it's that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared. So one might call this the, the four that statements of Christianity because there's for that's that make up this creed, that he died, that he was buried, that he was raised, and that he appeared. The heart of Christianity is Christ, but conceiving Christ in four contexts, conceiving him crucified, conceiving him resurrected, well, buried, conceiving him resurrected, and conceiving him appeared alive to many. These are the four contexts of this creed. So brothers and sisters, the resurrection of Christ has always been a part of the preaching of the gospel by Christians since the beginning of the church, since the church's conception. It's always been the heart of Christianity. The heart of Christianity stopped beating. And then on the third day, the heart of Christianity started beating again to never stop again. And it appeared to many the heart of Christianity, Christ himself. So he is risen. Good job. So today we're going to focus on this creed statement, this statement of faith from Paul, and we're specifically going to focus on the resurrection of Christ. And we're going to look at the resurrection and its roots. We're going to see four resurrection roots, that it's rooted in eternity, it's rooted in history, it's rooted in prophecy or scripture, and finally it's rooted in future, our future, and then finally, we'll look at how our, Christ, our faith in Christ must be rooted in his resurrection. 
So let's look at this first thing. This comes from three, verse 3, verse A. The resurrection of Christ is rooted in eternity. So what do we mean by that? We mean that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have always conceived of Jesus' death and resurrection for the salvation of souls. That there was never a time when he didn't have that plan on his mind. This is uh, plan A, and there was no plan B, like David Platt says in his book, Radical. So where do we see this in 1 Corinthians 15? It's in verse 3. It's in one word, and it's the word received. This is a gospel that the Corinthians received, and later on, Paul talks about how he preached what he himself received, right? This is a received gospel. So who did he receive it from? If we trace that receiving back, eventually we get to God himself, the one who first proclaims the gospel. So I mentioned already that Paul stated it's not man's gospel. So this is him in Galatians 1, verse 11 and 12. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. He received it from an appearance of Jesus Christ, straight from the horse's mouth, as it were. So what was, was, was Jesus kind of making it up as he was going? Was this message just developing throughout time and space? Or was this always the plan of God? Was it always rooted in God's very own um, mind? So 1 Peter 1, 18 through 21 says this, knowing that you, the church, were ransomed from your futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. We were ransomed by the precious blood of Christ, but note what Peter says there. This lamb who was slain was foreknown before the foundation of the world, before God created the world, before Adam and Eve fell into sin. God had this plan in his mind. He knew his son would become a man, would go to a cross, would die for our sins, and would raise from the grave, promising life and hope to all who would believe in his name. This was in his mind before in eternity. Um, let's get a, another verse that kind of backs him up, this up. Revelation 13, 8 gives us kind of the same story. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. The it in the context is the beast, right? The, the Antichrist. So all will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. And so, again, we have this plan, this salvific plan for our souls being founded in eternity. When were our names written in this book? It says before the foundation of the world. And whose book is this book? It's the Lamb's book. And who is this Lamb? He's the Lamb who was slain. And what kind of book is it? It's the book of life. Because he didn't stay slain. 
he resurrected from the dead. And so before the foundation of the world, God has had us in his mind and he had this plan that Jesus would become a man and die for our sins. So the reformers from the 1500s, they called this, this kind of teaching, they called it the covenant of redemption, that God made a covenant with himself for the redemption of lost souls uh, before the foundation of the world, that the three persons of the Trinity made this eternal covenant to redeem fallen humanity through the Son taking on flesh, dying on a cross, and resurrecting from the grave. So this covenant has sometimes been imagined as a kind of conversation going on between uh, the Father and the Son. The most famous of these imaginings was called the Father's Bargain by a guy named John Flavel. So I wanted to read it here so you can kind of get this sense of God thinking of sinners before he even created the world. So the Father says this to the Son. My Son, here is a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves and now lie open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them or will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. What shall be done for these souls? And then the son responds, O my father, such is my love to and pity for them that rather than they shall perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their surety. Bring in all your bills that I may see what they owe you. Lord, bring them all in that there may be no after reckoning with them. At my hand shall you require it. I will rather choose to suffer your wrath then they should suffer it. Upon me, my father, upon me be all their debt. And the father responds, but son, my son, if you undertake for them, you must reckon to pay the last might. Expect no abatements. If I spare them, I will not spare you. And the son responds, content, father, let it be so. Charge it all upon me. I am willing and able to discharge it. And though it prove a kind of undoing to me, though it impoverish all my riches, empty all my treasures, yet I am content to undertake it. Now, it's powerful, right, seeing Jesus' heart for sinners. But one thing that I don't think it gets through is that it kind of makes it sound like the Son has a heart for sinners and the Father wants justice. But that's not true, right? Jesus says, everything I do, I do what I see my Father doing. Jesus' heart for sinners is actually just telling us the heart of God for sinners. Uh, another um, guy from the 16th, 1700s, Thomas Goodwin, writes it this way. The Son being revealed in the flesh expresses and utters but what was in the heart of all the three. God, the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit fully express their heart for sinners in Jesus on earth. And so this is the covenant of redemption that God's resurrection of his son is rooted in eternity. It was plan A, there is no plan B. And so for believers, we can trust in God's faithfulness. He had this plan and he carried it out throughout all of history and he continues to carry it out. For us who maybe are here today and thinking about following Jesus, I ask you just to consider the love of God. Consider what we just expressed through God looking at sinners, those who are in open rebellion against him, and instead of reacting by saying, let me pour out my wrath, he reacted by sending his son to die on a cross for our sins. Consider the love of God in Christ. So let's look at our second 
resurrection root. Uh, the second one comes from verses 5 through 8 in 1 Corinthians 15. The resurrection of Christ is rooted in history. So it's rooted in eternity. It's rooted also in history. It is the real and true myth, as C.S. Lewis uh, once coined it. It's real and true, and it happened in flesh and blood, and it happened in space and in time. It has been witnessed to, and accounts have been written down about it, and thus it is historical. Paul writes this in verses 5 through 8, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And so Jesus, after he raised bodily from the dead, he appeared to many, many people, and they saw him, and they believed that it was Jesus back from the dead. And they wrote their accounts down, and they testified to the nation's of these things, thus give, making it historical recording. So he appeared to uh, Peter in the twelve, which is likely recorded to Luke, in Luke twenty four thirty four, which is that road to Emmaus account that I talked about. It references that Jesus appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. He appeared to five hundred brothers. This seems to be a reference to Jesus's going to Galilee. So every week when we recite the Great Commission. Um, that is the Galilee appearance of Jesus. And likely there were 500 believers gathered there when Jesus is showing himself to all of them alive, and then he gives the Great Commission, right, to his church. And so that's likely his appearance. He appeared to James, his own brother, which I think is just such a great proof of the resurrection. James did not believe in his own brother, that he was who he said he was, but then afterwards becomes a staple and pillar of the Jerusalem church, believing in the resurrection of his own brother. I feel like it, you know, that's a pretty strong testimony. He appears to the apostles again in a couple of times. And then finally, Paul mentions that he appeared to him as one untimely born, likely referring to his Acts 9 Damascus Road experience. So people saw Jesus, they touched him, they ate with him, they, they saw him alive again. Now, some uh, would say, yeah, Jesus rose from the dead, but it was a spiritual resurrection. It wasn't like bodily, like he didn't literally come back in the body. But look at the creed again. Was Jesus' spirit crucified? Was Jesus' spirit buried? So then why then would we say it was Jesus' spirit that was raised on the third day? The entire context is Jesus, body and soul, in this uh, creed. So, more on the historicity of Jesus. Uh, two scholars have been very helpful to me in my own walk when I think about the historicity of Jesus' resurrection. The two are William Lane Craig, he's a Christian philosopher, and then another kind of uh, Christian apologist named Gary Habermas. And what they do is they point out a couple of facts that almost all critical scholars accept in regards to the gospel accounts non-Christian critical scholars as well. They point to a couple of these facts that almost are universally accepted. Three in particular that they point to is that the grave was empty. The tomb was empty, so an empty tomb. The second thing that they uh, point to is that there are a lot of people that believed they saw Jesus after he died. 
And then the third thing that they point to is that the early church sprouted and grew from a gospel that had the resurrection at its center. Those are three things that even non-Christian historical scholars don't deny. And so let me give a couple of these things. They're all in our creed, right? The, the empty tombs implied when Jesus is buried and then he's raised. Um, the, the appearances are said straight up. And then Paul is quite literally preaching the gospel to the Corinthian church and saying at the center of it is Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection. And so we see these things in 1 Corinthians 15, and there, there's lots of different defenses for them. I mean, for the, the growth of the church based on the resurrection, read the entire book of Acts. The entire book of Acts just shows the growth of the church on the message of the resurrection. For the empty tomb, these scholars are... Uh, William Lane Craig and Gary Habermas, they go to Mark 14, chapters 14 through 16, and they make the statement that Mark appears to be recording something that is extremely early. And here's one of the evidences for that. When Mark talks about the high priest, he never mentions him by name because he assumes that the audience knows who the high priest is. Well, the high priest was Caiaphas, right? Caiaphas dies in 37 AD, which meant Mark's source, right, which is likely Peter's account, Mark's source for this, this resurrection account, Caiaphas is still alive when it's written down. And so they're assuming that. So that means that Mark's account dates back again within five years of the resurrection of Jesus. And this is why most of the non-Christian historical scholars state, okay, some of this goes back very early on, and some of these are legitimate facts, right? All of them are legitimate facts, and that's kind of important. So if you want just more of historicity, uh, if you go to, um, for this, those particular three facts, go to desiringgod.org and search an article called Historical Evidence for the Resurrection. It's by a guy named Matt Pierman, and he gives all the different evidences for those three facts that are found from Scripture. But here's kind of the kicker, so facts. The question then becomes, William Lane Craig, Gary Habermas, what they say is, what best explains those three things put together? How can we explain an empty tomb after death, a lot of people that believe they saw Jesus after death, and a church that then just sprouts in a hostile environment based on the resurrection of, a, of this Jewish man, Jesus? What's the best explanation? The argument is there's no better explanation than the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. So they stole his body. Then why did hundreds claim to see him afterwards? They hallucinated. So they all hallucinated the same exact thing about the same exact person, 500 at one time. Never recorded in history has that ever happened, uh, mass hallucinations like that. Uh, why did the apostles then live miserable lives. Why did they go gallantly to their deaths, right? If it wasn't that, they really did believe Jesus was raised from the dead. There's really no good alternate theory that fits the facts presented to us by Scripture other than what Scripture says. Jesus on the third day rose from the dead. And so Jesus' resurrection is rooted in history. So again, I would challenge us, what, what's the implications of that? That there really was a man who really did teach what Jesus taught and really did die how Jesus died and then really did come back from the grave. 
What other person can we point to and say, that person came back and and is still alive? There is no other man like Jesus Christ. So consider the implications of that. And it's important for us Christians, too. Jesus is real. He could be felt. He can be smelled. He can be tasted. That'd be a little weird. Um, You know, he can be heard. He was a real living human being who was also God, the Son, at the very same time. So let's look at this third resurrection route. Uh, The resurrection is rooted in prophecy. And by prophecy, I mean scripture, the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit inspiring authors to write about Christ throughout the Bible. So we see that it's not only just rooted in eternity, it's not only just rooted in history, but it's also rooted in scriptures. This comes from verses 3 and 4. There is a kind of, uh, well, we'll see it, repetition. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. So besides the four that statements, there's another piece of repetition in the creed, in accordance with the scriptures. And it belongs to these two phrases, Christ died for our sins. So that's all throughout the Old Testament, apparently. And then on the third day, he was raised from the grave, right? Those two statements, the the claim here is that that is peppered throughout the scriptures. It's in accordance to what God has already written through his prophets in the Old Testament. So what's being taught here, I think, is the best Bible reading tip a person can ever have. For personal reading, for corporate reading, for thinking about the Bible, this is the best Bible reading tip. The Bible, the scriptures, are all about Christ and him crucified, and him resurrected. That from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, at the core forefront of Scripture is Christ. He is what it is all about. The Bible is all about Jesus. The Bible in its entirety, at every level, points to Jesus. It points us to Jesus' death for sins. It points us to Jesus' resurrection on the third day. It really is, as Charles Spurgeon once said, All roads lead back to London, just as all Scripture leads back to Christ. There is a road from here to Jesus Christ. I mean to keep on his track till I get to him. Every passage of Scripture leads us to Jesus Christ. So I'm convinced of this for really two reasons. First is kind of experientially, and maybe not a good reason for you because it's kind of my experience. But my experience is in prepping for school when I'm teaching from the Bible or when I'm prepping for a sermon at Remedy or, or whatever it is, I have never yet run into a passage of Scripture where I could not find Jesus all throughout it. I have not yet in my life. Now I'm young, so maybe, maybe I will run into it one day. Second, and more importantly for us, Jesus tells us that the Bible is all about him. So in Luke 24, 44 through 46, this is one of his resurrection appearances. He says this, Then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, in the prophets, and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Right? And so there's really two things going on here that show us that the scriptures are all about Jesus. First, he says, I showed that everything written about me 
in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. The Old Testament, the Jews organized it according to three parts. In the Hebrew order of the Old Testament, it's the first five books, which is the law of Moses. It's then the prophets, which is actually Joshua, Judges, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, all of the prophets that we actually, uh, Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then the 12 minor prophets. That was called the prophets. And then the third section was called the writings, or sometimes they would call it the Psalms, because it started with the book of Psalms. So the Jews actually, if they were to summarize their scriptures, they would say it's the law, it's the prophets, it's the Psalms. And that's what Jesus says here. He said, uh, he said to them, the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. So every ounce of the Old Testament has written, is written about him. That's one thing that he states. The second thing that we see, right, firming up this belief is it says he opened their minds to the scriptures. And what's the first thing that he then says? Thus it is written that I should suffer and on the third day raised from the dead, which is quite literally Paul's creed in 1 Corinthians 15, coming from Jesus himself. And so as an exercise, just to, to, to give us some experience here to, to prove this point, that Jesus' resurrection is all throughout scripture, I'm going to go through each section of the three sections of the Old Testament and give two examples of Jesus' resurrection being prophesied about in the, the Old Testament. So the first section of the Hebrew Bible, the Law of Moses, um, we'll, give, we'll give one that includes the phrase, on the third day. So I went to BibleGateway.org, pretty normal, popped in the phrase, on the third day, and just looked at all the times in Scripture that that phrase comes up. And lo and behold, the first time the phrase on the third day comes up is in Genesis 22, verse 4, when Moses tells us that on the third day, Abraham saw the place that he was to go and sacrifice his son, Isaac, the famous sacrifice of Isaac story. And so on the third day, he goes up this mountain. Isaac is carrying his own wood, right? Kind of Christ carrying his own cross. I don't know, maybe I'm stretching it. He's going up to this place to be sacrificed, and then at the last second, God stops him and gives a ram to go in his place. And Abraham doesn't sacrifice his only son, John 3.16 echoes right there, but instead sacrifices a ram in his place. Now, this passage is overflowing with crucifixion prophecies, and John 3.16 clearly alludes to it, and so that's one way the New Testament church read this passage, but there's an additional way to read it as well. On the third day, Isaac was given back to Abraham alive. In a figurative sense, Isaac was resurrected from the dead. Now, you might be like, you're stretching it. Hebrews 11:19, the New Testament church writes, he considered that God was able even to raise him, Isaac, from the dead, from which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So Abraham, according to Hebrews, in that moment of going to sacrifice his son according to God's word, thought to himself, God can raise him from the dead. And then Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says, and figuratively he did. He gave him back to Abraham alive. And so the very first phrase on the third day in the Old Testament points to Jesus' resurrection, which was on the third day. Another phrase from the law uh, this is a, a quicker one. It's the third time in Scripture on the third day comes up. On the third day comes up, and it's another death and resurrection story. Joseph is in prison. 
There's the uh, chief baker and the chief cupbearer who are also in prison from the Pharaoh, and they have dreams, and Joseph interprets their dreams, and he tells the chief baker, uh, you're going to die on the third day. Pharaoh's going to, he's going to kill you. And then uh, he tells the chief uh, cupbearer, on the third day, you're going to be restored to your office. And so what happens in the stories later on, on the third day, the chief baker is killed and he's hanged on a tree, right? Like Jesus. And then on the third day, the chief cupbearer is restored from prison back to his position at the right hand of Pharaoh, like a resurrection of types. My wife also pointed out, you've got bread and wine, which is kind of interesting too. Um, So let's look at the second part of the Hebrew Bible, the prophets. What about the resurrection? Is it in the prophets? Uh, Let's turn to Jonah 2, uh, 6 and 10. It says this, Jonah's writing in the belly of the well. He gives kind of a a psalm. Um, He writes, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. And then at the end of his prayer, it ends with the beautiful, and the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited him out on the land. Hmm. He, didn't stint, he did not smell with the stench of death, but perhaps the stench of sushi. Um, so Jonah was in the belly for three days, and Jesus reads this passage. He reads this passage about himself. Jesus in Matthew 12, 39 through 40 says, But he answered them, his disciples, and, or sorry, the crowd who's asking for a sign, He answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So again, Jesus reads that and he says, there it's written about me, my crucifixion and my resurrection. There's another one in the prophets, Joshua Joshua 10. Uh, Joshua just defeated foreign kings, five of them. They were hiding in these, like, caves. He kills them. He hangs them on trees, which is according to the Deuteronomy, cursed be any man who's hung on a tree, uh, which is also about Jesus. And then uh, verse 27 records this. But at the time of going down of the sun, Joshua commanded, and they took down uh, the kings from the trees and threw them into the cave where they were hidden themselves, and they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remains to this very day. And so he hung these kings on trees, put them in tombs, and rolled great stones over them. That sounds familiar. Every Christian should be like, I know what that's about. The difference is, which he writes, the stones remain to this very day. The difference is Jesus rose from the dead. The stone was moved, and there it remains removed to this very day. So how about the third, final part of the Hebrew Bible, the Psalms or the writings? They're called the Psalms because the first book of that is the Psalms. So this one's pretty easy. Uh, David already did this in the call to worship, Pastor David. Um, Peter, in the first sermon after receiving the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, preaches one of the Psalms they preach is from is Psalm 16. Psalm 16, 10 through 11. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, the place of death, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And here's how Peter speaks of that Psalm. Brothers, I say to you, 
with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So the early church read Psalm 16 about Jesus' resurrection. Uh, one more, one more uh, from the Psalms or the writings. The book of Esther. Queen Esther herself becomes a type of Christ for us, someone that's typifying and pointing us to Jesus. This is another one of the on the third day uh, references. In Esther chapter 5, on the third day, she goes to the courts of the king to present herself to him. Now, some of the background to that makes this a little more significant. In Persian law, the wife of the king cannot approach the king while he's in court unless he gives her permission. If she does approach him without permission, she is to die unless the king extends grace to her. And so when Esther goes on the third day, she goes not knowing whether she dies or lives. She goes thinking, I'm about to die, perhaps. And the king extends out his golden scepter And then she speaks to the king, and from that speaking, all of the Jews in the world are saved from the plot of Haman. And so here we have Esther on the third day going into death's mouth, coming out alive, and quite literally saving God's people in the process. Esther serves as a type of Christ. And this is corny, but like Captain America, I can do this all day. (laughs) We could do this all day. We could sit here all day and talk about Christ in the Old Testament. And so I pray, uh, dear believers, that when you read your Bibles, you look, like, like Spurgeon says, you look for Christ and you track him down until you find him because he's there in every passage of Scripture. He's there to be found. We just have to seek him. So let's look at this fourth, final root. The resurrection of Christ is rooted in the future. So it's in eternity, it's in the history, it's in the Bible, It's also in the future. This comes from 1 Corinthians 15, further down, 12 through 19, verses 12 through 19. Paul writes, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. End quote. And so the Corinthians at this point, are denying this teaching that states that we will one day resurrect from the dead, or as the Apostles' Creed puts it, we believe in the resurrection of the body. They're starting to deny that tenet. And Paul then states, well, if there's no resurrection of the body, then Jesus couldn't resurrect in the body. And if Jesus didn't resurrect, all this stuff that we do on Sunday, the preaching, the believing, the trusting, is worthless. We're still in our sins, and worse than that, Because we're paying a cost in following Jesus, we above all people are to be pitied because we live 
sometimes miserable lives for Christ. So look at verse 19 again. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So what does Paul mean here? I mean, think about Paul's life. This is a a list of Paul's sufferings um, from 2 Corinthians. Um, he, He writes... In 2 Corinthians 11, 16-29, he lists off a ton of things that he went through because of his following of Jesus. He says this, He was whipped with 40 lashes at least five times. He's imprisoned multiple times. He had countless beatings, often near death. He was beaten with rods at least three times. He was stoned at least once in his life. He was shipwrecked three times. He had frequent traveling He was in danger from rivers, robbers, Jews, Gentiles, cities, wilderness, and also from false brothers. He had many sleepless nights. He had much hunger and thirst. He was exposed to the elements and the kind of the cherry on top. He had anxiety for all the churches that he planted. He had anxiety for all the churches that he was preaching to and that he was helping to plant. Behold your best life now, right? That's your best life now, according to Paul. Um, Behold the good life. If you're considering following Jesus, count the cost. It is costly. Now, it only becomes worthwhile because we have the promise of the resurrection. So our receiving Christ makes all the costs easy to be paid, but it is costly and it is hard and it's not uh, sunshine and roses, uh, so to speak. Without the promise of the resurrection, we are to be most pitied among people uh, because the resurrection is our guarantee for a future and future life. So let's conclude in a couple of ways. Um, our fifth point is if the resurrection is rooted in all those things that we just talked about, our faith should be rooted in the resurrection. Uh, this comes from 1 Corinthians 15:1 through 2. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. So we're called to, to believe in Christ for salvation. How does one receive life from Christ? They trust in him. They trust in the message of his crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection, and his appearances. They, they trust Christ for salvation. The good news is that Jesus died for your sins. He paid the price. And the resurrection proves it. Because Jesus is presented back to us alive, we can be assured that God has been satisfied, that the sins, the debt, has been fully paid. Um, Thomas Goodwin says it this way, For Jesus, under those bonds and bolts, which if it had been possible, would have detained him in the grave, as Acts 2.24 states, the strength of sin and God's wrath, the curse against sin, did as cords hold him, as the psalmist phrase is. Other debtors may possibly break their prisons, but Christ could not have broke through this, for the wrath of the all-powerful God was the, this prison, from which there was no escaping, no bail. Nothing would be taken to let him go out, but full satisfaction." And therefore, to hear that Christ is risen and so is come out of prison is an evidence that God is satisfied. He's satisfied. There is no more payment for sin to ever be made. So think about your own lives. Think about sins that you currently 
are doing, that has been paid for in Christ and Him crucified. And the resurrection is your guarantee that Christ or that God is satisfied. Jesus being at the right hand of God right now and God always seeing Him is a constant reminder that sins have been dealt with and have been paid for and that God is satisfied. Now, Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 15 that we, there's this idea of believing in vain, this idea of uh, believing in a, a way that's not true belief. Now, how do we do that, which we don't want to do, by the way? Um, we do that when we deny the truthfulness of the gospel, which we just talked about, and we do that when we add or we subtract anything from Jesus, if we add something to the gospel, Jesus plus anything, we do not have salvation. We make the gospel ineffective in our hearts. If we subtract something from Jesus, we also make the gospel ineffective in our hearts. But note here that if our faith is rooted in Jesus and him crucified and in him resurrected, Paul speaks of our salvation in past, present, and future tense in 1 Corinthians 15. We are uh, in the past, we have been saved. He says, you received, past tense. We are presently being saved by standing on solid ground. He says it this way, in which you currently stand, in which you stand, present tense. And then finally, we will be saved in the future, which he then says, which you are being saved. And so Paul says that Christ has saved us so thoroughly that it's past, present, and future. We have everything that we need in him. So the believer doesn't just believe in Jesus in order to get in Christ and then works out his salvation from there, but the believer trusts in Christ to become united to him and continues to trust in Christ until he dies or she dies or Christ comes back uh, first, whichever one happens first. And so we've seen the resurrection. It's rooted in eternity. It's rooted in history. It's rooted in scriptures. It's rooted in our futures, and the call of the gospel is that we repent, we turn away from our sin, and we believe in this Jesus that we were talking about. So let's conclude with this. I just want to read the resurrection account from Matthew 28, 1 through 9. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb, and behold... There was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. He is risen. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your love. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your heart.
Thank you for displaying the Father and the Spirit's heart to us. That you are a God who seeks those who are in open rebellion against you. And you provide satisfaction for their sins. And you provide them with new hearts. And you unite them to yourself in Christ. I pray just, Lord, that you would give us faith today. That our faith would be strengthened. That we wouldn't believe in vain. That we would trust in Christ alone for the salvation of our souls. And that we would continue to trust. Thank you, Jesus, that you, even now, at the right hand of God the Father, pray on behalf of your people and intercede, constantly, constantly filling up what is lacking in our lives, in our actions, in our thoughts, in our attitudes. Thank you, Jesus, for loving us. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Um, in the believer's meal. So at the end of uh, this song, I'll come up and lead us in communion. We invite all baptized believers to come up and get the bread and the wine or grape juice. If you're new here, uh, the bread is also in cups, so make sure you get a cup of bread and a cup of uh, juice or wine. Um, at the end of the song, I'll come back and lead us. The supper is both the church's stamp, declaring that our confession of faith in Christ seems good to us, and it's also the proclamation of Jesus' death until he comes back. It's our sign that we belong to Jesus' body. And it's the very message that invites you to belong to Jesus' body. And, and perhaps even more importantly, the supper, is, the supper is God's promise of life to us through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus. His broken body and precious poured out blood for us.
Transition further into lifting up God through worship and worship through song. I'm going to read this from Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, and he, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Crimson stain, he washed 
faith because Jesus paid it all all to him I owe and left the crimson stain he washed it white as snow my mind to Calvary where Jesus bled and died 
Savior on that cursed tree. His body bound and drenched in tears, they laid him down in Joseph's tomb, the entrance by heavy stone, Messiah still and all alone. Oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. Oh, praise his name forever.
writes in Romans 6, starting in verse 5, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So as we move into this last song, this last little part of worshiping through song, um, I just invite you to... Again, remember the reason that we're here celebrating this Sunday and every single Sunday. We all have the opportunity to be raised to life with Christ. Let's celebrate that. Precious compassion that pours From the wounds that won our salvation Sin was strong but the Savior is stronger. Come, let us worship Him. Great was the death that we owe, and how high was the price of our